0: Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? to hug the mountain, to envelop that mountain, hug the mountain, to envelop that mountain, hug the mountain, that mountain, that mountain, he wants to make love to the mountain, tough young guys, sinewy bodies in there, fingers, teeny toes, challenge the rock, challenging death, why do I climb the mountain, because I'm in love. Space,
1: the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek to seek out new guests and new opinions to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to Episode 6 of Give Me That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today I'm talking about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, with a good friend from this very network, Chris Franklin, who is one half of the Supermates podcast and one half of the Nightcast. How are things on Earth too, Chris?
2: Oh, they're going just peachy, Siskoid. How are you?
1: (laughs) Well, on this side of the border, uh, everything's fine. Uh, First, a bit of context, as this isn't normally a review show, Uh, the Fire and Water Network has this other little show you see called Film and Water, in which our own Rob Kelly sits down with various guests to talk about his and their favorite movies. Before Gimme That Star Trek was even a glint in my eye, he started a series of occasionally released episodes about the original cast Star Trek films starting with The Wrath of Khan, and you and Cindy were on Search for Spock, right, Chris?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right.
1: And the episode on The Voyage Home just dropped in December, and I myself am set to talk about The Undiscovered Country with Rob and David Ace Gutierrez in a future film in Water. But Rob had absolutely no interest in talking about Star Trek V, surprisingly, which (laughs) which most fans consider a terrible film. Well... Is it? Yes, it is. But even Gene Roddenberry (laughs) himself labeled it apocryphal. uh, But we think it's really not as bad as conventional wisdom would have it, and we aim to prove that. Uh, But Chris, before we go any further, you've got to take the quiz every guest has to to date so that people out there know who they're actually dealing with. So if you're ready.
2: (laughs) Okay. I'm ready for the Kobayashi Maru. Let's do it.
1: (laughs) You cannot win this. How did you, how did you get into Star Trek and why is it important to you?
2: Well, my dad had started watching Star Trek in syndication and when I was a real little kid, he kept trying to get me to watch it and for whatever reason I was resistant. I don't know why, I have no idea, but it, I mean, I was still pretty young when I started watching it, but it was, I was about six, I think, when I finally caved in and this, you know, this is me being a, a comic fan. I even had amigo star trek figure that a neighbor gave me and i kind of knew who he was and i kind of didn't i knew abstractly what star trek was but my dad finally got me to sit down and watch star trek and i was instantly hooked i think my i, I can't pin it down to the exact episode but it was either uh arena or operation annihilate it was one of those two i, I seem to recall so after that every saturday evening early evening my dad and usually my sister and i would watch star trek while my mom was still at work so that became kind of a family thing we did together and then my dad took me to star trek three and four when they came out i just missed rathacon i I didn't get to go see that one in the theater but i had the uh, book and record set so i was up up to speed before i went and saw star trek three uh and and that just uh from then on i was hooked i got some of the dc comics when i could find them and uh It's just, uh, it's just been part of my, uh, nerddom ever since.
1: A lot of people have been, you know, saying that they started watching it with their dads. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's like a common ground for a lot of my guests to date. Here's the little mini survey, really. First, what is your favorite iteration of the show?
2: My favorite version is the, the original series. Um, it's the, it's the classic crew, the classic actors um, that includes the movies to me um, it's kind of I guess because you know where I came into Star Trek while they were going on I don't differentiate too much between the original series and the movies it's all it's all one big story to me so yeah anything from from uh, the cage up through undiscovered country really is in my mind that's Star Trek <laughs>
1: And which is your favorite character from any of the shows?
2: My favorite character, this sounds like a really just generic answer, but it actually is Kirk. I just really love the character of Kirk. He's, you know, he, he started out being my hero and he still is. I mean, he just, um, I don't know that, that confidence and swagger. It's, it's something I kind of wish I had. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really, but I like to make myself think I do sometimes, but, uh, yeah, there's just, uh, I don't know he was probably the first hero that I felt like you know he was more human than the the superheroes were being portrayed at the time. you know he had more depth to him, and uh, he could fail, he did have foibles, you know he as you got older, you realized man, this guy really goes to women like toilet paper uh things like that, so <laughs> I mean you know he wasn't exactly the perfect specimen, you know, or anything. I think that's why he appeals to me, and and there's just something downright charming about Shatner, no matter what he does. <laughs> so.
1: <laughs> and do you have a, a favorite alien species or culture?
2: Mm-hmm. Favorite alien species or culture? You know, I, I this this sounds like a really generic answer, but I, I would have to say the Vulcans. I the more I think about it, it it's it's really strange. It's it, there's so many things about the Vulcan culture that we really don't know. I mean that that haven't been explored. I'm sure they've been explored in novels. But as far as being explored in canon, you know, shows and movies, we haven't, we don't know as much about them really as, as the Klingons in a lot of ways, which is interesting considering that, you know, one of our main characters through all of Star Trek was obviously half Vulcan. So anytime we go to Vulcan, we hear about what Vulcan's, uh, their, their, their beliefs and, and like the whole, the whole deal. Well, me and Rob and Cindy got in that discussion and Star Trek three about the the katra and all that you know it's what do they normally do when they die i mean do they all have to go to mount soleil and all that you know and and i mean it's really interesting there's some interesting things and like i said i'm sure they've been explored in novels that i haven't gotten around to reading but in canon not so much but anytime we get a little glimpse of it 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 perks my ears up so to speak
1: (laughs) well put (laughs) <laughs> okay, okay. So, Star Trek V. The Final Frontier. Yes. Almost the final movie. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> Almost the final yes. movie. Uh, for me, it was the last one I saw in theaters uh, of the original cast films. I don't know if it put me off, and then I didn't see Star Trek Six, which became my favorite, seeing it on TV later or on uh, VHS. But I remember going to the drive-in on the American side. Sometimes movies didn't come to my town, and you just... You just had to cross the border to see them. And okay. my mom used to bring us to sci-fi films that she did not understand or want to see, you know, just because, to make her boys happy. And I remember vividly coming back from that showing, and everyone in the car was faking having liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah she didn't want to disappoint us, and we didn't want to disappoint her, so I didn't see the next one after that it It was the final film for me in in some ways, but uh, I've come to embrace it more uh later in life, maybe not because of the film's production itself but the, the way it caters to the characters and uh, there is some good stuff in there would you agree
2: yes i I definitely agree i that that's kind of my notion i didn't see it in the theater and i I really can't explain why. I guess I don't know why me and my dad didn't go see it. The only thing I can figure, it was 1989, and I'm Batman obsessive. And mm. any time I could get to the theater, it was to go see Batman again. So I know my dad and my mom and I went and saw Batman after I saw it with some friends. And and so that was probably my one time to get dad into the movies this year, uh, <laughs> was was taken up with Batman. That's why we didn't see Star Trek five And it may have not come to our town theater. And I was only 14 that year. So I couldn't drive yet. Uh, so I didn't see it then. But as soon as it came out on video, I rented it and my dad and I did watch it together. And the parts that I still really like about it, me and him grabbed to immediately, we we, we grabbed onto those immediately. And, and we still we will get into it, but we still make references back and forth to some of those scenes. So, so yeah, it's, I, I'm with you. It's, there's there's a whole big story about the Star Trek five that could have been and and possibly should have been and that Shatner wanted it to be versus what was made and but yeah it, it yeah, well we'll get into it but it, it, there is some good stuff to still like in it I I'm, I agree with you
1: yeah it was a troubled production to be sure yes it just didn't turn out to be an Apocalypse Now or <laughs> <laughs> it's it more an Alien, an alien three uh, kind of screw up but right. uh, yeah. yes let's get the bad out of the way because we do admit okay. it has serious flaws one of these is the effects they did not go to Ugh. ILM in this one uh, ILM was too busy on other projects or and uh the special effects company produced some pretty ropey effects unfinished effects you know very flat spaceship or juddering animation of the models the look of it is not great
2: no it's i mean that's my daughter was watching it with me i watched it again the other night for for this you know and uh she came in and saw most of it and even she pointed out how the effects were pretty bad, <laughs> and she's nine, uh, so and I don't think she was. She's watched a lot of Star Trek with me, so she di- wasn't really holding it to today's standards. I think she was kind of holding it to the standards of the Trek movies she's seen, and the uh, probably the the updated special effects on the the series, the the TOS series when. When it's on me TV and things like that and, and BBC America, she, you know, if Star Trek's on, it'll usually end up being left on. We'll watch it. And even though I'm not 100% sure I can, I'm learning to deal with those new effects just because I, they're in front of my face all the time. But, but either way, this is definitely the one that really jumps out at me is like the Klingon, the gun, the, the, on the, uh, mm-hmm. the, I don't know if it's a phaser or whatever on the tip of the, bird of prey wing when it fires it's it looks like a cardboard cutout that's sliding back and forth it's yeah there's it's almost stop motion like almost
1: yeah exactly and you could tell the the movie you know the movie is cheap the minute you hear the motion picture theme come on it doesn't even have
2: new music which all the other films do they did get jerry goldsmith back so maybe he's like well i'm gonna take my my star trek theme back uh but yeah especially because that was being used for next generation
1: right which was so, already on
2: yeah which of course that's uh, that was Harv Bennett's uh, explanation of why it didn't make as much money was <laughs> well next generations on they don't they don't have to wait for thanksgiving dinner to get turkey you know then get a good turkey meal every week or whatever <laughs> and, well Speaking of turkeys.
1: Uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say. One of the things that I don't think works in this film is that there are way too many characters uh, or supporting characters, like those ambassadors on Nimbus 3. You know, mm. you, when you get David Warner in a role, you have him do something. You know, it, there, there's a lot of these guys and then all that Klingon crew, which is just the worst. I, I would have excised the entire Klingon subplot out of this. Uh, because it doesn't mm-hmm. really, it's not necessary. No. Well, I can hardly remember no. their I names. Said,
2: yeah, I, I had to look, I had to go look it up too. Yeah. And the Klingon ambassador is, or the consulate or whatever he is, he's the, uh, he's just simply a plot device to, you know, for that scene at the end. And the Romulan consulate, the actress is, whoa, man, she, not trying to be mean, but she's, <laughs> especially when she's in a room with David Warner, it's like, Oh honey, you're you're no, you shouldn't. <laughs> you cannot hang in a scene with David Warner. Come on now. It, but plus, of course, the whole thing of you know continuity, Nimbus Three doesn't really work in any kind of Trek timeline. You look at it. I mean, I don't think it's supposed to be. It's been there for twenty years. Well, you know, like twenty years ago, they hadn't seen never seen a Romulan until Balance of Terror. You know, so. <laughs> How does that work?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it depends when the 20-year gap occurs. But, you know, it could be like, uh, yeah, it's something that happens because of the Organian Peace Treaty. It's like, we've been forced into peace. Well, let's just put some ambassadors on a planet and, you know, we'll call it Mm, peace. Yeah. Let's... But nobody yeah, little, cares about the service. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's it. Uh, but yeah. that whole Nimbus Three place is one of several deserts that we visit in this uh, movie. It's, there's not a lot of variety. Its color palette is is necessarily beige. Uh, and then yes. the when they infiltrate, we'll get to, to the the plot later. But when the Enterprise crew attacks Nimbus Three, they wear uniforms that are also beige and spend a portion of the film in beige costumes.
2: <laughs> It's, oh, right. God. <laughs> we're back to uh, the motion picture.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit pastel. Uh, and then, of course, Nimbus 3 has what I would call the Shatnerism of the film. Catgirl with three breasts, that thing.
2: Yeah. Oh. Well, and that and the action sequences are really clunky. And considering that this movie was cut down and apparently shaped up a bit by Harve Bennett, who felt like some of the action sequences were a little uh little doughy, he uh what, one thing that really gets me is Kirk they stormed Nimbus three. I know we're gonna get into that, but he, he you know, his his fight scenes as he's walking in are, are below Kirk level. That's it's not up to his usual quality and, and uh and then he walks in and he suddenly doesn't have his phaser in his hand after having used it, knowing he's walking into a into a room that's gotta have some kind of adversarial, you know, attack on the plan. And then of course the Catwoman jumps on him and that is just a really it's just not really shot well edited well it's it's really showing that okay Shatner had directed some T.J. Hooker uh <laughs> but I don't think he was quite up for a major motion picture you know I'm not I'm not trying to beat up the guy there are some nice shots in the movie but it's just not polished as uh as you would expect from a Star Trek film and one that had a a budget, you know, a decent budget that apparently was getting cut left and right, but maybe these, the Paramount guys kind of, kind of got an inclination of what they were going to get and started <laughs> taking money away from it. I don't know. Did
1: you have any other, uh, problems with the film while well, we're still on the, on in that chapter?
2: Uh, well, just, um, it, not, not so much in that first section. Um, I think when he's climbing El Capitan, parts of it really look uh well done i mean they you know they they do a good job of of making you think okay that's kirk up there they they do a decent job but then when you know when spock appears okay he's floating around him it looks a, it looks a little hokey but it's not horrible but when he falls and it's a close up of shatner and it's an obvious green screen it is one of the most obvious green screens <laughs> in movies i mean it's really It really kills all the other good work they did to establish it. And it's, it's a shame. You know, it's, it's another case where the effects are just really, really subpar. And no matter what they did in camera that was actually done well, the effects would come in and undermine that. So it's, it pulls you out of the movie after you've just got pulled into the movie. It's, it's unfortunate.
1: Well, before we get into the, really the Yosemite scenes, which I think are crucial to the, what's good about the film. Mm-hmm. That, that really takes us into what works, I think, because what works is the character stuff. And mm-hmm. the big three are central to this, Uh, you know, Kirk, Spock, McCoy. Uh, but the other roles also have, they all have something to do, with perhaps the exception of Chekhov, who gets to play captain in, in a fake-out situation, uh but that's about it. But the other guys uhura's fan dance and uh uh scotty engineers a jailbreak and S- uh, sulu crashes a uh, shuttle into the you know pilots it, it, that shouldn't be really that hard should it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> flying a shuttle through a shuttle bay without the tractor beam so lazy piloting uh stuff but but still they get to do some action bits and
2: what did you think of the scotty uhura romance they float here which was later ignored, but yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't mind it. It just, it, I think it just, it kind of comes out of nowhere to a point and, and then it doesn't go anywhere. I kind of, I think because they didn't pick it up in six, it does make this movie feel more like it's out of continuity (laughs) almost instantly. You know, it's like, well, where did that go? You know, it's, you know, there's obviously some sparks there, or maybe they've already, I mean, they're going to go on, Shore leave together, so you know it's uh when I first watched it, i'm like what where <laughs> where'd this come from but it's not that i didn't uh didn't like it i didn't i mean i I'd been perfectly happy if they you know went in that direction. It makes sense I mean after being stuck together for twenty years, you know you figured <laughs> they, there might be some pairing off going on so uh, yeah, I, I didn't mind it at all. I just kind of wish they'd done more with it if they were going to go there.
1: Yeah, it's one of the things that seems out of continuity. You know, when they say that Cedric Five doesn't count, and I, I found a way. If it wasn't for that stupid Nimbus Three opener, there's actually a way to see this film as an imaginary sequence. It happens in the Yosemite scenes, which, uh, you know, once the, um, once we're done with the Mission Impossible 2 opener, uh, thing Mm -hmm. with the captain climbing El Capitan. So it's, it's all, you know, captain versus captain kind of idea. Mm -hmm. There's some nice ideas there that don't quite necessarily put a button on it. Uh, but the, the -hmm. whole camping scene, uh, for some reason I kept remembering as actually having farts in it. (laughs) It doesn't. It sort of convinced me there was farting in it. I, you know, maybe I, just, I, you know, in my mind it was like Blazing Saddles.
2: <laughs> if only. <laughs> I actually love that scene. Yeah, you do get the bourbon and beans, an explosive combination. You get that line, but uh, you know, it, it, yeah, there's actually no farting in the in the scene. <laughs> uh, but that's and, a great that, scene. That, yes, it is, and that's the scene that that me and, and my dad and and Cindy actually always end up coming back to is, uh, you know, there's just so many great exchanges and, and, and bones, you know, the, uh, uh, I was reading in uh, the nitpickers guide for classic trekkers, uh, Phil Foran, uh wrote those books. And he, um, he points out how there's a lot more uh, colorful earth metaphors in this movie. There's a lot more uh, uh, swearing. Maybe after the star Trek four, they picked up some of that, you know, cause you know, bones is like, Jimmy really pissed me off, you know, <laughs> it's, and things like that. But, but, uh, you know, just the, idea, the fact that Bone says it, maybe it never crossed that macho mind of yours, but you might have been killed. <laughs> About time somebody said that to him.
1: <laughs> I love the line where, you know, God, I, I liked him better be- before he died. And, uh, you know, I, I love those those exchanges as well. And uh, there's the whole, um they, they lay in, I mean, obviously, they weren't planning for it. But that scene lays in elements that will come to fruition in generations. Uh, the whole idea yes. that you know Kirk will die alone,
2: give or mm-hmm. take, give or take a Picard, right? Yeah, without Spock and McCoy, he'll die. As long as they're with him, he'll be fine. But if he's on his own, then he'll die alone. And you can and you can go if you go by that, then you can say, well, he didn't have them with him on the Enterprise B when he officially died, and he didn't have them with him when he died in the Nexus. So both deaths. He did not have his two best friends with him, and that's that was the prophecy of Star Trek Five fulfilled.
1: <laughs> very much. And the whole thing, roll, roll, roll your boat, gently down the stream, life is but a dream, which is the Nexus uh, as well. So there's a yes. very
2: nice parallel there. Yes, it is. It's like, you know, and I'm sure nobody intended it that way. Um, the creators of Generations didn't. Go back and try to tie that back in or, but it's, it is a nice little poetic callback to it, even, even if it's unintentional. And I love the row, row, row your boat. And, uh, that, that's the thing that my dad will say. He'll say, okay, so do you know row, 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 row your boat? <laughs> <laughs> I think he even adds a few more rows than Shatner did, you know, but. It's such a great little scene, and you really get the idea that, that these guys, you know, Bones points it out, you know, they, they're in space together, and yet the, when they get shore leave, they all go they go off together, but uh, this idea of the family that they've created over the years, it, it, it's, it's really nice and really well done and, and touching, and you get the idea of the camaraderie be- between those three actors, too, and because they genuinely did like each other. Um, you know, they might've had a few squabbles here and there over the years, but, uh, they did, you know, those two and Shatner got along pretty well over, over the course of Star Trek from most estimation. So it feels sincere.
1: Yeah. Shatner burned his bridges with all the others, but (laughs) those three stayed friends. (laughs) And if you're, if we're, this is my explanation for making it apocrypha, uh, if Life is but a dream, and we, you know, ignore the uh, Nimbus Three opener and like put it later in the film. Then um, we start at a campsite and we end at the same campground, the same around the same fire. That's that's where the movie ends, and mm-hmm. uh, maybe and you know during the film we learn things about the characters that Spock has a brother that uh, you know what their pain is and it's almost as if the film were campsite stories, fireside stories where these characters might have confided in each other, told themselves sad stories or you know and projected themselves and even there's even elements of other adventures whether it's uh hating the klingons or uh defeating god himself a false god uh, which happened a lot in the series so mm-hmm. it's it's a bit like we're just reminiscing, we're we're shooting the shit if if you will, and <laughs> uh and and also confiding, you know, very important uh, things and memories. And then, you know, when we're back at the campground, uh maybe those just like stories they were telling each other. It could feel like that. If someone yeah. wanted to keep it out of continuity, you know. And <laughs> and it's a meditation as well on it's like the reverse of the Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan was In Wrath of Khan, Kirk felt old, and by the end, felt young again. Mm -hmm. And in this, they all feel old. Uh, There, there there seems to be like a fear of being redundant. You've got TNG on, you know, somewhere else going on, and this is like instead of the triumphant passing of the torch that happened in Star Trek VI. If this were the end, it's really about guys kind of being over the hill, and uh, Scotty hitting his head on the bulkhead, and uh, uh, the, you know the Enterprise is in pieces and doesn't work very well. And it's like, are we are we <laughs> still relevant? And maybe you know that's part of their own. Inner turmoil. Are we still relevant? Are we? What have we done with our lives? We don't have families. We don't have. You know, that's how they start, and by the end, they've come to some sort of acceptance of their situation and can move forward. But I think the being around a fire, those two or three friends around a fire, is actually creates a sort of context for the actual adventure that we see. You know, whether it's yeah. good or bad.
2: Yeah, I, I like that. I, and you know, I could totally buy that. I don't have any problem with this. I mean, there's little things that in every Star Trek film that make you, uh, you know, the, or any story that, you know, continuity was never, was never up in the foremost in the minds of the creators because you did, you did have different people coming in and out, you know, of of each production, but uh, I mean besides little wonderful things like the fact that the destruct sequence in in Star Trek 3 is the exact same destruct sequence from Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, which was on T V last night and I just marveled at the fact that man, they really they really just did that exactly the same way. That's awesome. <laughs> and I knew that, but it was just fun to watch it again you know the fact that Shatner wrote the story uh, came up with the story and wrote it with Harve Bennett and the the Lowry guy that wrote the screenplay maybe some of what he was feeling right. as the aging hero of the franchise seeped into the movie you know and and maybe that's where you're picking up some of that it's like are we are we you know over the hill now of course that question is asked in Star Trek 6 which I love Star Trek 6 as well it's one of my favorites and and it actually goes back and forth between it and Khan, which one's my favorite. But, um, you know, maybe some of that seeped in to Shatner's story because I'm sure, you know, the original crew actors, they probably weren't overly excited about the notion of a new Star Trek series. I've never really heard any of them come out and say they just hated the idea. And, you know, I'm sure they felt like, hey, these guys are mowing our grass to a point, and And how much longer can we milk this cow, you know, how much longer is this going to go on? But it does make it kind of interesting that, you know, it, within the story it does seem a little ridiculous that they would pick the barely functional Enterprise and its crew to go on this crucial mission. I mean, it it is Captain Kirk, we know, that he is the... And I, and I like the fact that they acknowledge the fact that he is the hero of of Starfleet, you know, because by God, after all he's done, he needs to be, you know, <laughs> recognized as the hero of Starfleet and his crew, the, the heroes of Starfleet. But it seems kind of weird that they would they would pick them in that ship. OK, you want to go grab Kirk and the Excelsior or another ship and and take them there. But I know, of course, they want to use the Enterprise. But when when they get there and they're on this type of very action-oriented mission, maybe it's the way the the movie's edited together, but you do feel like, okay, maybe these guys are getting a little too old for this type of action. It just doesn't seem quite... As believable as it was even a few years before you know there we're maybe we're a little we're a little bit past the type of uh of action sequence you'd get on the original series, you know with these guys and and maybe not maybe if it was edited together more tightly and it showed us more convincingly that these guys could take care of themselves and it didn't there wasn't dead air hanging after Kirk threw a punch, you know and it didn't look like it connected well then <laughs> Then it maybe would have sold it better, but yeah, so I think that the idea of the age, their age is creeping into the, the films. You know, I, I think you can see it, although I do think they all, not, not to, you know, not that that really matters, but they all look pretty good in this movie. They all look, you know, of course Scotty's gotten heavier in the, through the films, but Shatner actually looks in pretty good shape. It looks like he actually maybe even lost a little bit of weight to try to since he was in charge, maybe he did just worrying about the thing, but he, he actually looks pretty good in the movie, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, that's interesting. I, I I don't, I don't try to, to put it out of continuity. It's, I know Gene Roddenberry apparently, you know, he had problems with it. He had problems with the idea of them doing the God story, which was his original pitch for TMP that eventually evolved into the Viger story. And, he had problems with that. He, he definitely had problems with Shatner's original idea that everyone would follow Cybok or his name was Zar at one point, but they would all follow Cybok, including Bones and Spock. And both he and Nimoy and DeForest Kelly, they all said, uh, no, those characters wouldn't do that. And they would never betray Kirk. And they were right. I mean, if, I think if the movie had come out the way Shatner, that part of it, the way he had wanted, I think you would have had a fan revolt over <laughs> over that. They would have had a hard time swallowing those characters doing that. So, and he later admitted that he would have been also been pretty honked off if somebody suggested that of Kirk. So, I I think that, uh, you know, I think cooler heads prevailed in that department. So that all worked out. Yeah, you
1: know, Shatner's uh, innate narcissism <laughs> was probably at play. You know, <laughs> Kirk needs to be alone at the end. Uh, you know, it, it's him against the world and. Uh, sort of doesn't necessarily see the point of view of the other characters and actors. Uh, and if you've ever read the, uh, you know, the William Shatner books, the Star Trek books that he wrote about Kirk, uh, where, you know, mm-hmm. Kirk basically um, defeats the Borg single handedly or, you know, is, is resurrected. <laughs> and I mean, those books are very much his kind of ideas where Kirk is superhuman, really. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, th- yeah. It's all about him. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I don't know how, I don't know either if uh, he was or any of them were edgy about Next Generations coming on because it wasn't an an overnight success either, not really. I mean, it really found its groove later on. But, you know, this film was partly shot on the Enterprise D sets. The redressed corridors, and so you kind of had the feeling that you were being replaced, probably. Mm -hmm. And he does, the the kind of sentiment that we see in this film about age and what have I done with my life kind of thing, does come up in his writings, and uh, Shatner's, I mean, and uh, in the recent documentary about the captains, where he interviews each of the other uh, show's captains. Mm -hmm. He has that meditation with Patrick Stewart and with others, about coming to grips with being the sort of icon and aging icon. And am I still relevant? And am I only relevant because of this, the Star Trek franchise? And he's still a thoughtful man. And you can see those ideas crop up in this. Now, you mentioned Cyborg. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cyborg's our villain, so to speak. Perhaps a, (laughs) a very... A sort of sympathetic villain what did you think of uh, lawrence luck and bill in this was well, he's mostly a tv actor he had a very very brief motion picture career and this was his last uh, motion picture but he only like, really was in like three or four films per se you know he's like the kind of actor feels familiar like you can't quite place him you know probably you've seen him in the in like a murder she wrote or something right and this is his last for good or ill, and it's his one claim to fame, other than you know being Lucille Ball's son-in-law. So, what did right. what did you think of Cybok as a villain for a Star Trek film?
2: You know, I thought you know watching this again last night, I think Lawrence Luckenbill does a really good job with the character, with what he's presented with. I mean, he really, I think, under lesser hands i don't know if the character would have been as well developed i think a lot of his acting skill his enthusiasm in the role comes through you actually honestly believe this guy is just he is so taken with his mission and uh despite the fact that there's something about him that always reminds me of a vulcan neil diamond i don't know what it is but is oh just yeah something that... oh yeah you're right <laughs> wow she got the way to move man Charlie. yeah uh <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the singing vulcan. Get that no, out. that's that's no, that's singing. a movie. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, Neil Diamond always got to do is you know undo his shirt and show his chest hair, and all the women go nuts. So you know maybe that's that's how Cybok, you know actually gets inside their heads. I don't know. But no, he. Uh, I know at one point they were wanting Sean Connery for this role, which is where they get sha is a bastardization of Sean Connery. Uh, But obviously he was busy being Dr. Henry Jones in The the Last Crusade that very same summer. Uh, So he he couldn't be bothered to uh, appear in a Star Trek movie.
1: Some men just don't like to be taken for a ride.
2: But Luck and Bill actually puts that character across, I think. And I really noticed that last night I actually he's so enthusiastic and he you really do believe that he he really doesn't want to hurt anyone, but he is determined to get to Shakari and, and, and have followers to go with him and he thinks his you know his ideas are, are right and he really puts that across really well. And uh I kind of hate that um that the movie doesn't really live up to his his uh character to a point the way he portrayed him. They when they get to to get to shockery, it doesn't quite live up to the grand spectacle that, that even Shatner will say it didn't live up to the grand spectacle that they wanted, but he sells it. I think he, uh, I, I like him. I like him in the part. I, I think, uh, it, you know, I don't know if anybody else would have done a better job. I think a lot of people would have done a lesser job. You know, I think it, it could have been another one of those cases where they got a decent actor in the role and they were just kind of there with the ears on and they didn't know what to do, you know. So he, he sells it.
1: Yeah, I think for me, the the moment where where I'm with him is when they tell him, you are mad. And he says, am I? He's not sure himself. Yeah. That there's something very right. vulnerable about him right there. He's at mm-hmm. his most interesting. In this Part, we get other names for Shakari. Uh, Eden, of course, relates to the uh, Space Hippies. One of my favorite episodes. <laughs> favorite bad <laughs> episodes of Star Trek. It's the only, yes. you know, it's a musical. Who, who doesn't love a musical? <laughs> but right. uh, it's also, they also call it The Source. That's one of the names. So like there's a oh, Jack wow. Kirby fourth world <laughs> reference. Uh, there, there's some comic book stuff in here because one of the, like the main follower of Cybox is called Jean J apostrophe yes. O N N, just like the Martian Manhunter. What is that about? I've never read anything about that. Uh, you know, like confirmation that somebody um, Lowry or whatever hat was, you know, a comic book fan, or, but, but these are very specific words.
2: I don't know. This bald alien on this desert planet mm-hmm. named John. <laughs> and John. Spelled
1: exactly the same. Uh, and then the source, yes. which is very, very Jack Kirby. The other thing I wanted to mention was that the, there's a moment, not Shatner's best. And perhaps that's why he won a Razzie for Worst Actor, uh, because, you know, this film racked up the Razzies. I think they won three Golden Raspberries, uh, Worst Picture and Worst Actor and Worst Director, uh, but was nominated in a number of categories, including Worst Film of the Decade. So, ooh, rough. Uh, I don't think it's that bad. (laughs) No, but it didn't win. It didn't win of the decade. Well, it's the moment where he, where Kirk tells Spock, orders Spock to shoot Cybok. And it's it's, it's a Mm -hmm. whole, shoot him! it's it's really it's kind of like the moment in star trek 6 uh let them die you know which that shatner himself was kind of against or the way it was played or edited in star trek 6 yes. mm-hmm. he himself in his own film directed himself and wrote, wrote himself to say shoot him to spock to shoot an unarmed man because it's, it's a very strange moment for me
2: it is yeah it's it's a very un star trek like moment you know i mean We've established that Spock is, as is, as is, is not nonviolent as possible with being a Starfleet officer. And you can argue, of course, is Starfleet military, blah, 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 and all that stuff. But yeah, obviously they go on military type missions. They carry, uh, guns, you know, they use guns. Uh, so he is obviously not opposed to using them when he has to. But yes, he has got a gun point blank at a, at a person's chest and Kirk's asking him to just execute him, uh, which is a bit much, you know, if if I think if they had had a struggle or you know, or Kirk said, you know, put the Vulcan put the Vulcan pincer on him, or course he's a Vulcan, but yeah, it just that part just really is it's problematic. And and that whole scene where Cybok is throwing Kirk around, he's got a hold of the the little rock gun, the rock rifle, and and he's throwing Kirk around like a rag doll. It is so obviously wire work. It's just, it's not, it's it's really sloppily done wire work uh, that you know Shatner's being lifted off the ground, slammed into the to the shuttlecrafts, and that whole part there is it's just really problematic. That could have been that could have been tightened up in in any number of ways to so that Cybot could get the upper hand when he got onto the ship. I mean, uh, and, and besides, I mean a shuttlecraft comes crashing into the shuttle bay and where's security i mean come on i mean nobody comes running down there to make sure where's the medical team where's security they're not going to go check and see that if they're okay that they you know obviously they have to know that they came in and crashed there has to be some kind of impact sensors or something going off saying oh there was a there was a crash in the shuttle bay I, i didn't buy that either i'm like okay nobody i know it's a skeleton crew But nobody runs down to check and see if anybody's hurt or dead or or what happens. (laughs) And I mean, if they had a, a security crew come in and Cybok is able to, you know, they never really go into his ability to manipulate or to sway people. But if he had swayed the security team or something and they all drew their guns on Kirk in Spock and everybody, that would have been a lot more satisfying scene than what you're talking about that was very out of character for pretty much everybody. It reminded me of uh, the scene that Nimoy had huge problems with in Whom Gods Destroy when mm-hmm. Garth turns himself into Kirk and Spock is trying to figure out, you know, it takes him like 15 minutes to figure out, okay, what do I do here, you know? Why don't you just stun both of them, <laughs> you know, or and and Nimoy had a problem with that script. And that was kind of one of his final straws in season three that he sent letters to Fred Freiberger and and all the producers that, you know, I used to play this intelligent character named Spock. Now I'm playing an idiot, you know, basically. Uh, so we're right back there again here. It's really unfortunate.
1: But it gets better. Uh, because I think the pre-Shakari uh, sequences really culminate in Cyborg trying to sway the the big three, mm-hmm. trying to release their pain, and we see not each of, but uh, you know, he, each of them are asked to confront their pain. Yes, I, we're not sure how this works. It's like a shared illusion because everyone can see everybody else's pain unfold. Uh, you can participate in your in your memory or your imagination of it. For McCoy, it's the euthanasia of his father, which is like, how did you take that moment?
2: That's a really powerful moment. I mean, it's, DeForest Kelly is, is very underrated, I think, because I think mostly because after he became Bones, he didn't do a whole lot of other work that you, that anybody recalls. He played the character pretty much. That was, that was what he did, especially after the movie started. And, uh, it's, it's a very powerful scene. The actor that's playing his father, they did a fantastic job of, of picking an actor and having him look like he was literally on his deathbed. I mean, that poor man looked horrible. It's well played by him. It's well played by Kelly. And it's its a scene that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people have a connection with, whether, you know, obviously we, we're not a doctor. Most of us aren't doctors. Ange might be listening to this. He's a doctor. Uh, but but We've been there. We've been there with loved ones. We've been there in their last minutes. We've we we even if we aren't in control, we ask ourselves, what could we have done? You know, why? Why did we get here? Could we have done something different? Uh, could we have sought medical help somewhere else uh, that could have saved them? Uh, it, it, it gets to me. And, the, you know, the fact that it's revealed after that he lets his father die, that a cure for the disease that was killing him was discovered Shortly thereafter, it's just a gut punch. I mean, but Kelly plays it just beautifully. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that's why there's scenes like that is why this movie can't be all bad because there's some damn good acting. In that scene alone, you know, and and honestly, I think as as much as I love Leonard Nimoy and his character of Spock, I think Kelly steals that scene from out from under both of them. I mean, it, he's given the more emotional, even even though we we're more invested in Spock's character and we know about what Spock went through, we know. His difficulty with his father, which is a thread that's been played through the movies and pretty much resolved in Star Trek Four, and I know you love that that scene in Star Trek Four, and I do too, at the very end. But despite all that, that's Kelly's scene, and he kills it; he nails it.
1: Yeah, it helps that we don't know as much about McCoy. You know, there's always been some veiled references to an ex-wife or you know a daughter and things like that, but mm-hmm. we never in the show. He's like the older character who has obviously has had a a life a life that has informed his distrust of technology and but we don't go into, we don't go into his life so much. Uh, you know, it, we're always more interested in Spock and we do delve more into Kirk's past than we ever do McCoy. And this would be a recent memory because his father is very, very old. But yeah, we, we don't know enough about McCoy to make this in any way redundant or we, we've never seen this before. And yes, it's mm-hmm. displayed beautifully because the Spock stuff I, makes me wonder if he actually remembers his own birth, which could is possible for a Vulcan, I imagine.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: sure. <laughs> but it also is probably more imagination. It's an image of his father's Dislike of humanity, or I mean, dislike of humanity. He married a, a human woman. What, what did you expect? Right. Uh, so that whole moment, right. so human, ugh, is probably just imagination. It's not a mm-hmm. moment that ever happened. Just an image of the father-son relationship. But I do love Kirk's whole. I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. Yes, <laughs> because we can put whatever. Uh, because we don't see it, it could be. You know, I like to think it's Edith Keeler, but at this point, it's probably David Marcus's death, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, it's. it's an accumulated pain. All the people he's lost.
2: Kodos, Kodos, the executioner. Yeah. His brother that he forgets at the end of the movie when he says, "I lost a brother once." Well, you lost a brother twice, then, dude.
1: <laughs> well, I think that's supposed to be a reveal. It's sort of like all the other guys think he's talking about. Uh, George but no he, he you know he means Spock and this is my actual real family or my new family now that's how I with all due respect to my siblings my own family is my group of friends I think it's more of a family than my right. biological family in truth gotcha. yeah that speaks yeah. to me as well but you know the whole you you can't steal my pain away and of course just looking at everybody else whose pain has been taken away they're not themselves they're puppets of Cybok,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: they're 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 Sulu uh, under the spell of uh, Landru again. It's. You know, they're all Looney yeah.
2: Tunes. Of the body. They're of the body. <laughs> they're the, yeah, they're all
1: of the body. So, uh, so yeah. So, he, of course, he's going to re- refuse that. I, because I think the way McCoy and Spock play it, uh, they're not, please take my pain away. They're, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of your power. I can resist this. So, mm-hmm. do your best. Do your worst. And mm-hmm. in other circumstances, Kirk might have said, all right, you know, go ahead. Show me. And then reject whatever illusion he creates. But we don't even get to that. It's, he needs his pain and, uh, it's, it's sort of a Kobayashi Maru thing because uh, he, he fights against it. You feel that he has that pain in that moment, the way he, you know, the way he plays it. So he can't win. Either he has his pain and he must suffer for the rest of his life or he gives himself up and his ship to Cybok. So either way, it's one of those moments where he got, has to make a terrible choice.
2: Right. Let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. What the deal with Cybok and his in his power of influence, I've kinda always in the back of my head just kinda told myself, Well, this is what would happen if Vulcans weren't so disciplined, didn't control their emotions, their ability, their telepathic abilities, whatever you want to call it, their abilities of like the mind meld and all that and the fact that, you know, Spock sensed when that ship of four hundred Vulcans died or you know that that time that is i always like to think that there's more to that than what they show you (laughs) in the in the films and so that in my notion that's how cyborg because he is the one hippie vulcan basically that (laughs) that gives into his emotions and he's he's unfiltered with his abilities and that's why he's able to to sway people the way he does he's and he's semi-empathic you know that's why he can alleviate their their pain and and i think it's i like to think that it's something that maybe maybe not all vulcans but other vulcans might have that ability if they weren't as indoctrinated in the vulcan way that that's my that's how i explain his abilities or he could just be some freak mutant or something i don't know but no it makes but sense I, I like to i like to think that
1: way yeah it makes yeah. sense because being in touch with his own emotions then he relates to others emotionally and there's a very strong emotional component to his telepathy, and it is out of control, really, because it, you know it, it doesn't require a mind meld. It's or there is like a sort of like a field, a mind meld field around them, because they can mm-hmm. share each other's memories in that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I imagine he's done the same to all the other people. I mean, we just haven't seen it. The other thing I love about the idea of a of an unfiltered emotional Vulcan in, in this film is that the warning about giving... Up, you know, giving oneself over to uh, emotion, if you're a Vulcan, is always one of uh, violence. You know, the Romulans are an offshoot of the Vulcans that uh, embrace their passions, and so they're uh, violent, warlike people. And anytime time mm-hmm. that emotion has overcome Spock, it's always been negative emotion or, you know, hysterical fits of laughter, but it's usually be- been negative emotion. Fear, mm-hmm. anxiety. But Cybok is at peace with himself, so his emotion really the the where he falls into the emotional trap, and we'll we'll see this as we go over to uh, Shakari god's planet that it's his arrogance and vanity that is out of control. his emotions have taken him over, really. He's lost mm-hmm. control, and it just seems like he's peppy and happy. But that happiness is really out of control, as much as any anger or fear that we might have seen from Vulcans in the past. Mm-hmm. So he's, yeah. you know, he's got like a Vulcan fueled arrogance that makes him believe that he has been in contact with God uh, against all logic. Yes. It's very much a, a fight between the logic of the moment. That you know, Kirk, Kirk is, will be the one that, to ask the questions. That this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> what does God need with a starship? <laughs> yes, and Cyborg cannot ask that question because of uh, because his emotions are completely out of whack, and he believes something yes. that he shouldn't believe that he sh- something that he should question not the existence of God or the divine, but the you know the, the relevance of this particular God with its suspicious limitations. Right. So, so let's go to Shukari. Okay, Let, let's let's go. go. Let's go to Shaker. <laughs> let's uh, let's break through the other galactic barrier. Uh,
2: <laughs> yes, the other one in the center, not on the edge of the galaxy, right. but the center. It's just
1: it's just <laughs> barriers. It's it's all
2: barriers. Uh, and uh, yeah, and it's uh, well, at least it's not
1: Vasquez Rocks. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's it's got an interesting look. It's not it's not the Eden that we would um, you know. It's very much the Vulcan ideal, perhaps or it's not heaven by any means from our perspective. Mm-hmm. It's dramatic, but I think it's, it's an inappropriate location. I think uh, it doesn't feel like an Eden, and, uh, you know, if at least the skies were interesting or because you got the whole crew of the Enterprise watching this from orbit and, uh, you know, they're mesmerized by what they're seeing. I guess maybe they're under the spell, but really it's just another ball of rock. <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's not the spectacle that the originally wanted he wanted it to have, have hordes of angels and 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 look very heavenly or eden like and then the slow reveal is that the the angels are demons and they they haven't found God they've found Satan himself and and that was quickly uh, <laughs> quickly changed to a to a god imposter so. Yeah, but I do like. I think the location shooting in this movie does help it. But I, I agree that maybe when they got here, they should have at least sprung for some some visual effects to spruce up the actual location, or you know, at least some filters to make it look you know otherworldly. than yeah, than it just being yeah here here we are on another desert planet. Well, you know, Star Trek's full of them. Vulcans one. Um, you know, we've already been in a on another desert planet. Uh, you know, we've got all the Star Wars movies and their obsession with desert planets. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, this was not, not the visual feast that, that I don't think anybody wanted. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a disappointment, but given what they went through this whole end sequence actually isn't as bad as it could have been because I mean, it from the sound of things, it was just a complete disaster. <laughs>
1: Yeah there was going to be a uh, legendary rock Man. Yeah, the rock Men, which are in the uh, deleted scenes <laughs> yeah. of the DVD. Yeah. I I think we're better off without them because uh, they would have looked pretty terrible, you know, at yes. this point. But for for all lead of the film's faults and we've highlighted many. And we will highlight more. We've got to admit that this plot, Kirk versus a False God, is a very classic TOS plot, and a lot of fans always begrudge the more action oriented military nature of the Star Trek films. Whether that, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody loves Wrath of Khan, but that's the moment when suddenly everybody's got a very much more military uniform. It's a war story. It's an action story. And yet it's the Mm -hmm. the most, the best regarded of the films. And I look at what Mm -hmm. they're doing with New Trek, the Chris Pine Kirk and all that. And, um, you know, I've liked two out of the three films and they are more action oriented. And, but, you know, the, the fans go, Well, that's not Star Trek. Star Trek should be morality tales and uh, sci-fi fables uh, and should be about exploration and uh, whatever. But in the films, the one that's most like that, that's most like a Star Trek episode is the motion picture, mm. which is kind of, a it's Nomad, I mean, it's whatever, the Changeling, <laughs> the Changeling mixed with Metamorphosis yes. is what it is. And then th- there's th- yes. this one, which is not <laughs> well regarded, and yet it is a classic Star Trek plot about man questioning his place in, in the world. Uh, and his relevance mm-hmm. in the world and then you've and then you know facing a false god or that idea or and for Cybok, who winds up fighting that god god in that moment takes the form of cyborg himself it's really that image of pride and arrogance and uh that we were talking about uh he has mm-hmm. you know him. he is his own image of god he took it upon himself to decide what was right and then you know it's hubris uh, made form all those yeah. these are very very much you know the, the classic star trek ideas that fans that don't like new trek say trek should be about and uh yeah. and yet those films don't really work they don't work as films for plenty of other reasons right. but i think that that's a great moment in the star trek franchise
2: that's a that's a good point i mean in in the the very i mean it's it's very on the nose but when kirk decides to you know go down to with Cybok to Shakari and they're in the little forward lounge with the ship wheel which i really like that i think that's neat and they look down to the plaque that says to boldly go where no man has gone before and it plays a little dun 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 i mean if that doesn't tell you this is what star trek's about really then i don't know what does i mean that you know they really have gone where no man has gone before that's why i mean the 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 title of the movie the final frontier you know, is very apt, you know, and you're right. I mean, that's that's pure Star Trek when when they go down to no matter how they got there. They're there. Uh, all the conflict with Cybok. It, it doesn't matter. They've, they've broken through the barrier. Their 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 mission is to explore to, you know, uh, I'm mixing in my Shazam TV show, but to develop understanding uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, to, to try to understand more about this universe they're in and. Of course they go down to investigate and, you know, and I think even Kirk's starting to not to buy into Cybok's manipulations, but you know, he, he goes to grab the phaser out of the, the shuttlecraft. I think that's a nice little bit. And, and Cybok puts his hand on his shoulder and shakes his head. And Kirk's like, okay, we'll do it your way, you know, which probably wasn't a good idea. But, you know, I think Kirk at that point was like, Hey, maybe this guy might be right. Here we are, you know, so. He was he was open to the idea, at least at first, but then of course, just like every other time, Kirk has to question the being that's in control, whether it's Landrew or Ball or you know, whatever it is, he's in, and then of course he's gotta blow it up. But <laughs> and I, I I love Bones' line of you don't ask the Almighty for his ID! Yeah.
1: Man, you do a great voice. That's a, That was a great DeForest Kelly impression. Oh, thanks. <laughs> really. These people will think I put a clip in there. No, that was Chris. That I was, love both. That was all Chris. That was me. You're all Southern <laughs> gentlemen. No, you don't ask him for his ID, and yet and yet, we've met Apollo, we've met Trelane, we've met the Metrons, we've met so many godlike, so so to speak, creatures that Kirk can't help himself. I mean, that's he's right to do so, and especially since the, oh, yeah. the monster wants... That, that was Apollo's shtick as well, right, in uh, Who Mourns for Adenaeus? Mm-hmm. He wanted access to a starship to escape his exile. So it's, it's the same yes. plot. It's really the same plot. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so Kirk is used to this. This is just another day uh, working in Starfleet. So he's right to ask. But I think that's it's a stronger confrontation with a false god than we've seen in the shows as far as the writing goes, the the acting and the, the power of the effects, even though we've talked about the effects as being not so good. But, you know, this moment is fine. Yeah, it's fine. wind machines and a set and, uh, you know, a projection 3D head floating. It works. I mean, that stuff works. What doesn't work so well is what they do afterwards. Once they, they blow up God or, you know, try to escape. Then we have, you know, the one last scare with the Klingons, who really do show mm-hmm. that they had no business being in this movie. Because, I mean, it's <laughs> undone almost immediately. It's The bird of prey shows up, shoots God one final time, and then Kirk thinks it's coming for him. But all it took was that diplomat the general from nimbus three to tell claw i think to basically rescue kirk and then to apologize to kirk i mean it's that moment (laughs) is very you know if this movie has no business being in the actual history of trek it's because of that ending where suddenly we're drinking with klingons and uh kirk is doing uh giving claw a salute from uh, across the room and it takes a lot away from when we – from Star Trek Six's actual dinner with the Klingons where it's very, very tense. This seems like, oh, well, I guess yes. we're all friends now. No, we're not. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And especially given that, you know, Kirk is recorded as saying he never forgave them for the death of his son, but yet he's, you know, he's eating, you know, hors d'oeuvres and, you know, <laughs> having drinks with them <laughs> Here, so yeah, it's yeah, it does undermine Star Trek Six. The ending is problematic and and I think you're right, I think if they just excise the Klingons, I think at this point they felt like, oh, okay, it's a Star Trek movie, we have to have the Klingons in it. it's like, well, no, no, you really don't, I mean, there was tons of tons of episodes of star trek where there was no mention of the klingons you know they they actually didn't show up that often in tos i mean when they did it was usually a pretty memorable episode but you didn't have to cram them into every story and i yeah of course they didn't know where they were going to go with star trek 6 at the time but at the at the same time it just it does seem forced and and the Klingons are just really cartoony. There's no two ways about it. They're, you know, the even the general. They they don't develop him well. I mean, he's, you know, he's this big, heavy slob of a guy that belches out loud and just, you know, he's he's drinking. He's He's obviously been just shuttered away to this the hole in the universe that because nobody wants to deal with him. And they could have done something with that character. If they'd built up some kind of relationship with him, he was on the bridge through almost the whole movie, they could have done something with him. But he was just there in the background. And like you said, they waste David Warner. At least he makes up for it next time, you know, but yeah. <laughs> in the next movie. His next couple of roles. Oh, yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. Tr- yeah. Yes, uh, yes, obviously, yeah, on, on, on TNG, too, yeah. And... Uh, at least they don't waste him there, but yeah, it's that whole part. It kind of undermines what they've done. And, and it's, let me, let me ask you this. Something I noticed. This is a nitpicky thing. I noticed this a couple of times back when I watched it. When they come to Shockerree and they get out of the shuttlecraft, Kirk, Spock and McCoy have actually decided to put their dress uniforms on their uniforms on anyway. It's all one uniform on here, but they put their deep red the uniforms, uh, Star Trek two on uniforms on and either Lawrence Luck and Bill. Came back for reshoots or Cybok just decided to get a haircut before he met God because suddenly his hair is a lot shorter than it was. <laughs> and it's really weird because when he, he sees himself in the, the God face turns into a you know, a twisted version of Cybok and he, and he confronts himself, the evil God Cybok has the long hair and he's got short hair. And I can't get past that now. I've seen it. Now I can't unseen it. I don't know why that is. That was a big continuity gap. They didn't give Luck and Bill the wig that he had on, or or the extensions, or or it was literally meant to be. He wanted to look really good, so he got a haircut before he met God. I don't I don't know what it is, but it it's just this little weird stumbling block I can't get past now.
1: Well, there's a lot of continuity stuff in this movie. I mean, as far as we were talking about Phil Turan's uh, nitpickers guides and i'm a card carrying member of the guild you know I've, I, yeah, okay. I've contributed to one book or other um oh, okay. i don't think i gotta mention i think you know it's sometimes you submit the same one someone else submitted but you know it's yours oh okay. yeah, yeah uh yeah. yeah but i did get you know i was getting the newsletter and all that I, I was deeply into that and i think probably the reason why i watched so much tng you know taping them and watching them over and over and trying to find new nits or finding the nits that were in the book so i did i did a lot of that uh in my uh You know, college years. This film, you know, I didn't notice this just watching it this week. That happens a lot. You know, hair is not the same length. Water in your glass, not the same height. Uh, Sometimes you notice, sometimes you Mm -hmm. don't. Uh, But this movie had way bigger problems in that area for me. You know, just. Uh, like the the, the turbo shaft uh, flight thing, <laughs> yes. where the four times as many floors or to, to the Enterprise and there normally should be where they fly past the same deck number twice. It's out of sequence. Out of sequence, <laughs> and then of course deck one should be the bridge, so it's the top should be one and the bottom should be. Uh, I think it goes to like seventy eight in this. It's reversed, even if it made sense. Mm-hmm. So, and the shaft isn't the shape of any trouble lift you've ever seen. Uh, it's, it's like an odd shape. No. So there's a lot of that kind of thing <laughs> going on where it's not. It's like out of continuity with other films, with itself. You know, this is the Enterprise where they have the same flat screen iPad consoles that they have in TNG, but by Star Trek six. Right. We're back to button pushing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it, and I think the turbo shafts are in the same spot. When you refit the Enterprise, you really refit the Enterprise. Let's, <laughs> let's change elevator shafts. Yeah, there, there's a, a lot of that, and I'm noticing a lot of that much more than, you know, the smaller things. But, yeah, you're right. When you notice a knit, uh, you start to see You were talking about uh, the Batman film, the 1989 Batman film, which was in competition with this as far as box office goes. And yeah. I've seen I, that was my first VHS tape. Uh, we got a VCR very late okay. in my life. I was 17. It was it was that year, 1989 or 90. It was the first time I ever had access to a VCR. And so I watched I watched Batman 89, you know, 100 times uh, probably. And uh, yeah, when I said it was my first, it was probably my only one for a long while. And there's like, there's a moment where Batman's belt, when he looks up at the helicopter at the, um, at some point, you just see his belt droop down. Yeah. It just goes down. It's and it's a moment that you know I eventually noticed and then I cannot unnotice it. It's part of the movie, and uh it's ridiculous, and it makes me laugh every time, but so it's that kind of thing once you see a knit. You cannot unsee it. It takes a while for you to forget it.
2: Superman 2, it's so hard. I I mean, I love it, but it's so hard for me to not watch it and say, okay, that was shot by Richard Donner. That was shot by Richard Lester. Donner, Lester, Donner. Because Christopher Reeve's real skinny. Okay, now he looks better. Margot Kidder looks worse. Okay. You know,
1: (laughs) it's... (laughs)
2: Yeah, and that's just,
1: it's part of the film. It becomes part of the film. It's texture, and you see the flaws, but it it shouldn't matter. Yeah, Star Trek V is probably a case of more flaws than, you know, there are too many flaws to ignore. Uh, there are many, many flaws, so that makes it a more than a flawed film. It made, it it was a failure, but we do love some moments of, and I mean, it does have some foreshadowing, uh, not just the generations, uh, but when I saw the ending, uh, this week, the very, very end before the credits, Start to roll. It's the end shot of Star Trek: First Contact, especially with that same mm-hmm. TNG music uh, or TMP or whatever you want to call it. But that same theme coming on the same way as we track back from the woods and a, you know a, a little light in the woods uh, and look to the sky. It's the same shot that Jonathan Frakes uses at the end of uh, First Contact. So, like-
2: right, that's a good point. I had I hadn't thought of that. Um- one thing that really weirded me, weirds me out at the end of, of the movie, is it's when, when they're back at the campfire, DeForest Kelly just literally sits on that log and never speaks, never moves, never, he, like, Shatner looks at him like, okay, join in and sing, it's like, I don't know if there was some cut scene where Bones was angry and he wasn't going to join in or something, but he's got his arms folded. And he's like Kirk and Spock are singing, but Bones isn't. It's really – and once I saw that, I'm like, okay, why, why isn't he singing along? What That was the whole point was to get all three of them singing together, and he's not. And it's it's kind of unsatisfying. you know. It's,
1: yeah, we're missing a – After the great – Yeah, we're missing a small bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's – well, see that's another yeah. uh, you, once you notice it you can't unnotice it yeah right. and the, the film right. gets progressively yeah. worse the more you look at it
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> well that that's the thing I mean it's it is you know I, I think it's overall you know it had lofty ambitions I really do think i I think the story actually is a like you said it's a very Star Trek story it's not a bad concept for a story at all uh, and it and it fits into Star Trek really well so I think you know, there were so many things and I'm not trying to make excuses for it, but I mean, the, if you've read, and I know, I'm sure you probably have the star Trek movie memories, yes. book. there's so many things that was against the production of this thing. There was a writer strike to begin with, and that delayed it forever. Then there was teamster strike, which was just apparently, you know, they were doing so many location shots that they had to, you know, take all the equipment and the crew and the cast out to the to Yosemite and, and the different locations i mean at one point there was a a truck was apparently sabotaged by one of the, the teamster union and it exploded in the parking lot i mean they were you know when they when they went to the location they were screaming and yelling at them, trying to run them off the road i mean it it was almost guerrilla filmmaking in a you know major motion picture. Yeah, that a fire on the point. set.
1: Yeah, there was a fire yeah, on the set. It's, yeah, it's just one problem after the other. I, you know, if I were Shatner, I would never yeah. direct again.
2: Yeah, exactly. I would too. It's I'd be the same way. Yeah, it's I think a lot of those problems show in the movie. Obviously, they're they're there on the screen. That's the problem. They're. You know, despite the fact that they tried to edit it down as best they could, it it still shows. But I think the overall story and a lot of the character bits, because these characters... Are so well beloved and 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 well crafted, well acted. The the, char- the actors are very invested in them. Even in a you know subpar showing, it's still worth watching because the characters that that's the difference. And I'm not I'm not trying to to bash the motion picture, but to me the motion picture is a grand spectacle. The effects are all there; it looks fantastic. Even today, it holds up really well. But the human element is so missing. The characters are so devoid of the charm of what made them what they are, made them so likable, made you love Star Trek despite what we now kinda of look at as some ropey effects on the original series. Now at the time the original series effects were pretty good and, and actually, you know, a lot of it ahead of its time. But there were a few ropey things here and there. But even now a lot of people can appreciate the story, the acting, uh the character development, the characters themselves. But that's kind of the weird trade off between the motion picture in this movie motion picture all spectacle no heart as far as i'm concerned the final frontier all heart very little spectacle
1: <laughs> <laughs> no that's it's true and uh, and you know the, the fact that they they had just come off a major hit with the voyage home like this story somehow had to have more humor to it than was probably designed for you know it's, a lot of the humor feels forced in this one you know mm-hmm. it makes it makes the yeah. characters look foolish at times ...for just those comedy beats. And uh, comedy beats or anachronisms, you know, you know, David Warner smoking cigarettes in the Star Trek fugues Kirk has a t-shirt with a slogan on it. It's the kind of thing that's supposed to make you smile or laugh, but it doesn't quite work. I think this was a more serious story, and where it really shines is... ...when the comedy is character-driven, like the scenes between the, the principals or when when it's dr- very dramatic, like the, the, the pain scenes. Mm-hmm. So it's the kind of thing where you get a lot of interference from different parties, and you get this Frankenstein's monster of a film, yeah,
0: <laughs> unfortunately.
1: And some people will uh, take to the torches and pitchforks <laughs> when they see it. <laughs> <laughs> to, to bring, to, yeah, to point. bring that metaphor, uh, home. Any other thoughts before you have to beam back to Kentucky and I go into uh, incoming
2: subspace <laughs> transmissions? I'm glad we got to talk about it. I appreciate you having me on and, and, uh, hopefully, you know, we didn't defend it. We, we obviously were very honest about the uh, shortcomings of it, but I think we both agree there's, there's quite a bit to like there. And I think it's, uh, you know, you could do far worse than to, to sit down and and watch the movie again and and enjoy the the really good parts because the really good parts are really good.
0: (laughs)
1: Right. And if people uh, agree or you should probably revisit it, we encourage you to do so. If if you agree or disagree, you can always leave us uh, messages or if you don't agree with uh, Chris's evaluation of the motion picture uh I E you you <laughs> G- are Hendricks. Hendricks uh you can leave messages of course for us at uh, fireandwaterpodcast.com. uh and there's always an active discussion around each of our episodes so it's always interesting to read and we'll I'll read those comments uh at the back end of the next episode. Uh where can people find you on the uh internets, uh Chris? We've talked about your uh, two podcasts, oh, you but don't... uh w- what do you have planned for Supermates and Nightcast in uh February?
2: Well, yeah, Supermates, uh we actually uh we're planning on having a couple guests come by and uh, uh take a look at something uh very very geeky, uh very very specific to uh I think a lot of our Demographic here, the uh, the Heroes World catalogs uh, that came out from the Heroes World uh, store chain that was uh, based in New Jersey. Uh, they put out comic book size catalogs. We're going to take a look at one of those. We're going to go through it and uh, page by page and talk about what's on it. And we're going to have uh, hopefully, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. We're hopefully going to have some special guests on there to help us go through it. Uh, on Nightcast, we are Ryan and I are talking about. The early Max Allen Collins stories, uh, he did two issues. We've talked about one. We're going to jump into the other in Batman and in Detective Comics. We are in the excellent, uh, Mike W. Barr, Allen Davis run. So that is, uh, I'm very excited for that because I just love, 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 love that run. <laughs> and, uh, and Ryan, I think Ryan likes it too well, quite a bit. And, uh, so we're really jazzed about that. So uh, yeah, keep your podcatcher over on the Fire and Water Podcast Network and check those out.
1: It's all on the Fire and Water Network. So if you're um, subscribing to the main feed, you're getting those. If you're not, you can subscribe to them separately as well. Yes. yes. Well, thank you again, Chris. We'll uh, I'll take a small break for the uh, some promos and then uh, incoming subspace transmissions, news, and your feedback from the last episode.
0: Batman Nightcast, a thrilling new podcast from the Fire & Water Podcast Network, hosted by Ryan Daly
2: and Chris Franklin. Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusaders' adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earth.
0: Highlights from this legendary era include... Batman No. 400. Legends. Mike Barr and Alan Davis. Batman Year One.
2: Batman Year Two.
0: Max Allen Collins. Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd. Ugh. Millennium?
2: You're not doing this right. Let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon. The Killing Joke. A Death in the Family. Batman Year Free. A Lonely Place of Dying.
0: Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Collins. Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of Batman?
2: The Rise of Tim Drake. Legends of the Dark Knight. And that's just up until 1989.
0: Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that?
2: You'll have to tune in to
0: find out. Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network.
2: Find it on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com.
0: Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, When Batman Fires Dick Grayson.
2: You want to find another co-host?
1: starting with Star Trek news. Some of you have been following the lawsuit brought to bear on Axanar Studios by CBS and Paramount. Axanar has been producing fan-made Star Trek episodes for YouTube and got into trouble when their latest project got $1.4 million in fan donations. This prompted CBS and Paramount to create fan film guidelines that require such things as afford to clock under 15 minutes and not feature any actors who ever appeared in official Star Trek content they've reached a settlement they can go ahead with the production so long as they follow the guidelines and offer it commercial free but the production is still in trouble after court documents showed that donations were spent on personal expenses, studio space, rent, etc., and aren't all available to actually make the film, so it might not work out after all. I haven't watched Prelude to Axanar or any fan productions that might close down in the wake of this settlement, but that's certainly something that might make a good episode of Give Me That Star Trek in the future, so we're looking into it. In Star Trek Discovery News, CBS has released a short behind-the-scenes clip as a teaser. We really don't see much, but there's a glimpse at costumes. And I I like the silver Starfleet pin on blue uniform. Nice color scheme for whoever gets to wear it. Uh, There are also some draconian-looking armors that might be Klingon gear. The sets are all seen from the exterior or as blueprints, so no real revelations there, and they make the captain chair look cool, even if this isn't a captain story. Quite a small glimpse into the show. But I'm sure there's more to come. But when? Because the May 2017 release date has been pushed back again. To when, I'm not sure. But because Saniqua Martin-Green is the main character and also stars in Walking Dead... Uh, through April, CBS is apparently afraid people will get confused, uh, because their new Star Trek apparently looks like a zombie survival show. I, I don't know. Spock's father, Sarek, has been added to the cast of Discovery, believe it or not. He's played by James Frain, who does look a little like Mark Leonard, sure. Uh, we'll probably get Spock's mom, Amanda, in the process, but no word on that yet. Two other new cast members have also been spotted in one way or another. Uh, Malik Pancholi, or not sure how he pronounces it, perhaps uh, best known as Alec Baldwin's suck-up assistant Jonathan on 30 Rock. And Emily Coots is listed as con officer on IMDb. She was in Dark Matter, The Girlfriend Experience, and Crimson Peak. Oh yeah, and Star Trek Beyond got an Oscar nomination for Best Hair and Makeup. Congratulations to Joel Harlow and Richard Alonzo. I'll let you know if they brought a statue at home in our next episode. Now for some listener feedback. Over on iTunes, on the Canadian side, Bold Robin said, Great podcast for all generations. Siskoid and his guests cover a wide range of Trek topics in delightful fashion. Fun to listen to. Thanks, Bold Robin. On Facebook, now discussing our last episode about the animated series... Uh, Butch Rosenbaum says, is it canon? Well, yes. At least parts of it is. Is it worth watching? I think so. But I'm a Trek fan, so I'm biased. Let me ask you this. Where else are you going to see here? DeForest Kelly, James Dewan, or Leonard Nimoy play McCoy Scotty or Spock again? Fair point especially if you haven't discovered those episodes. On FireAndWaterPodcast.com, David E. Gutierrez says, Star Trek The Animated Series is a nice take on Toss that feels like the Tales of the Enterprise original pitch Roddenberry made. T.A.S. is often just okay, but its standout episodes make it worthwhile. I think we have to remember continuity wasn't a concern for the original series, and it certainly wasn't in the animated series. Rob Kelly of the Film & Water podcast says says that Aaron Bias is a great guest and that he should podcast more. Hear that, Aaron? Uh, he also says, I remember watching Star Trek The Animated Series in the same manner I watched the original series. I saw no real difference. Kids are accepting that way. Limited animation and all. Thanks for the kind words on our video store episodes of Film & Water. Our store had all 79 Treks in VHS form, and that was how I filled in the gaps for any episode I might have missed. It also allowed me to watch Star Trek Next Generation from the beginning in order. Good times. Yeah, I guess. Those weren't a very good value for home ownership. So few episodes per cassette tape. I myself used to just tape them off the TV. Chris Franklin, who was just my guest on this episode, says, I consider the animated series canon for the most part. There's too much established here to ignore. In many ways, it was the original EU by which he means an extended universe not the european union i suppose uh, the pitfalls of all filmation productions hold it back basically the repetitive stock shots and music as mentioned that music is also heard in their live action shows like Shazam Think it hurts Trek more than other shows because it is more cerebral and talky than almost any other Filmation production. The cold stiffness of the dialogue delivery is a bit hard to get past at times, especially from the usually lively Shatner. Having said all that, I think Filmation's look was actually more visually pleasing than Anna Barbera's in many ways because the characters always looked on model. Uh, but I wonder what a top flight animation studio could do with the best of this show, say Yesteryear. Use the audio but totally reanimate it. With new music or existing toss music. The mind boggles. Then we have Michael Bailey from Views from the Long Box who says I've never watched the animated series, but Siskoid and Aaron made a good case for it. I like me some filmation, so it should seem like a lock, but for some reason it always seemed out of my wheelhouse. Given the kind words the hosts and others have given it, I guess it goes onto the geek-watching bucket list. Quick question. I don't know if it was brought up during the episode, but did the Star Trek episodes have the usual filmation moral of the story? I know that wasn't with them from the beginning, but as much as I hated those bumpers at the end of the episode, I now find them charming. So I was wondering if Star Trek was before or after they started doing the PSAs. So if you mean the stuff that's like at the end of uh, Masters of the Universe... Or um, G.I. Joe's uh, knowings have the battle. Star Trek episodes don't have that kind of thing. The moral is just organic to the story as per, uh, you know, the live action episodes. Then we have Brian Linton who says, um, The only clear memory he has of the series is the scene from yesteryear where Spock makes the decision to euthanize his pet. So it was a treat for him to learn more. Certainly memorable I wonder how many kids were kind of traumatized by that. Ido Bosnar says he loves the animated series too and basically considers it season four of TOS. He also says the magics of Megas 2, uh, which I consider one of the stronger ones, while I I'll acknowledge that many elements of it are quite silly, it still stands out to me for the reasons Aaron mentions, i.e. the fact that there's this very frank discussion of what the devil slash Lucifer actually signifies in Western culture. Alan W. Wright says when I was growing up in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada in the 1970s, I noticed that Star Trek was advertised on the French channel. I can't remember if it was Radio-Canada, the French CBC, or something else we were picking up. And when I tuned in, I'd see it was a cartoon version of Star Trek. For ages, I wondered what the heck this cartoon version of Star Trek was. Well... Now you know. Sphinx Magoo talks about the Xinti, which were uh, an alien race created by Larry Niven for his books, and then that found themselves on the episode he wrote of that show. Says the Xinti have appeared in comics too. One of them was a member of the Imperial Guard in Marvel's X-Men. Dave Cockrum threw him in as one of the new members. So that's a strange Niven connection. Uh, Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Strike says another great episode. I've always had a soft spot for TAS, which anyone that listens to the opening of my show will understand. I grew up watching it Whenever it was on, it was one of the special things about going to my grandparents' house in Fanwood, New Jersey. They got different stations on their cable company than us, and one of those showed TAS. And finally, Joe X says, If anyone wants to see more of the TAS-only characters, Peter David, who else, used them in the DC Star Trek comic until he was ordered to drop them and in his New Frontier novels. So, mores and all that. And truly, finally, I want to give my thanks to everyone who liked and shared on social media. On Facebook, that's Aaron Henley, Abba Daba, Abel Padilla, Andrew Leyland, Billy Lacasse, Carlos Mucha, Clinton Robinson, David A. Gutierrez, who here says, I think it was Nimoy that forced Filmation's hand in hiring Takai, Duane, and Nichols. Uh, he wanted the show to continue its diversity. I think we gave credit to, to Shatner for that, but this actually makes more sense. Uh, he also says, I also, I now say sabotage. Uh, D. Bash, Derek M. Koch, or Koch, however you want to pronounce it, Derek William Crabb, Eduardo Lon, Fred Stendifer, Gautam Shoren of Pulp to Pixels Podcast, uh, Gene Hendricks, Give Me Those Star Wars, H. Daniel Raybolt, James Williams, Jared West, Jason Pope, Kevin Lauderdale, Mark Adams, Mark McGee, Max Romero, Mike Peacock, Nicholas Aram, Rob Kelly, Roger Prieb, Russell Burbage, Ryan Daly, Sean Emmons, Shag Matthews, Sean Brock, Tim Brown, Tim Wallace, and Zaki Hazan. On Twitter, that would be A. Isabel Brain, Alan Middleton, Beatlemania, Between the Pages, Coffin Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Comics in the Golden Age, David A. Gutierrez again, Greg A., Keith G. Baker, Connell, Martin Gray, who says, I never knew it needed a defense. Isn't it just fun? And I agree, sorry, Martin. I called it a defense on, uh, you know, when I was marketing it, but really it's more of an awareness campaign. Uh, Sam Lowe, Treasury Comics, Treconomics, Trekbot, we welcome our robot overlords, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles, thank you all for sharing, retweeting, whatever it is you do online. Uh, as usual, let me remind you that you can leave comments at FireAndWaterPodcast.com, on the Fire and Water Facebook page, or on Twitter with the hashtag FWPodcasts. Until the next episode, this is Cisco reminding you to go boldly. I'm glad I did this. I'm glad Rob didn't want to do it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. He gave us one to, we didn't have to worry about stepping on his toes. So that was good. So (laughs) so now does
1: it mean I have to do the motion picture with Gene at some point? Because that's also a hole.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you probably (laughs) do.
1: I so don't want to. He loves it too much. And I hate it so much
2: because of him and Scott Gardner. They did, they did an episode several years ago that was basically saying, hey, go back and look at it. it. We really like it. Give it another shot. And I did. And, and I, it didn't change my opinion.
1: <laughs> well, the new DVD edit isn't so slow. They've re-edited it, and it's not as long as it used to be. It's not 2001, A Space Odyssey long uh, on those shots. Right. But it's still, it's still very, very slow. I, there's one moment I like in that movie, and it's the where after Spock goes into Viger's database... However, that works in his spacesuit, and they, they pick him mm-hmm. back up, and uh, he says it goes to what you were saying because it he, he says. V'ger is missing something. And what is you know, what is he missing? What does he want? What is he looking for? And he grabs Kirk's hand and says, This, you know, and it's like the the it's a very emotional moment for Spock, showing mm-hmm. his friendship that way and saying it's it's the, the human humanoid connection that he's missing. He's missing yes. uh closeness, he's missing this. And that's like the one great moment, and it's also you know, a quick one sentence review of the film.
2: Yeah. <laughs> see now you've got to do an episode <laughs> just so I can so say that, can say yeah.
1: that. Uh, maybe I'll just put this in the bloopers <laughs> yeah. at the end of the show so I can say it without doing
2: it <laughs> yeah. anyway
1: uh, so I've got to go back to some uh, editing and put Shag back in my head
2: Ugh. oh Ugh. good lord I'm sorry yeah. <laughs> I'm
1: almost done I think.
2: he's like Cyborg once he gets in your head you can't get him out
1: <laughs> he's the Cyborg of the network uh, yeah, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man
0: hold it please Hug the mountain, envelop that mountain. Hug the mountain, to envelop that mountain. Hug the mountain, that mountain, that mountain. mountain. He wants to make love to the mountain. And the climb
1: is going where no man has gone before.
0: where no man has gone before challenge the rock challenging death why do I climb the mountain? because I'm in love